Well, good morning, and like Pastor Sam did, as Kyle did, just uh, so appreciative of the worship that we've been led to so far this morning. We are entering into probably the, well, not probably, the most important week of all history. It's a week that we remember the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so, as, as Sam said, we're in the book of Mark, Mark uh, chapter 15, and, and this outlines a lot of what really leading up to the cross and what that all looks like. And so, I want to look at that as we open up and read it from Scripture, not all of the story, but a lot of it. So, let, let's just enter in. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, the scribes, the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate, who asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate questioned him again, Are you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! So the soldiers led him away into the palace and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews! And they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. And then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, save yourself by coming down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. You know, of the many pictures that we are given surrounding the crucifixion, few are more prominent than images of people grasping for power. There's religious power. The Pharisees holding people prisoners to rules and regulations and practices. There's political power. It's Pilate using whatever means he can to win favor, to remain in power, and to do what the people would want. And then, of course, there's, there's Roman power. The soldiers using power to put down any disturbance that may come and to keep the populace in line. It, it, it's just a scene that's surrounded in power. And their means of holding power was just as different as their positions. For the religious... It was the power of the temple, and who could worship and who could not. But that also meant 
who could buy and who could sell, who could do life. And for the political, it was the freedom, the amount of freedom that would be given and the weight of taxes that could be put on people. And for Roman soldiers, it was the ease at which property could be taken from them, or even worse, that life could be taken from them. All paths of power congregating, coming together, not understanding that they all intersected at a cross. Where one man didn't grasp for power, in fact, he let it and put it aside. He made no claim to power as they had done. And he, unlike them, was explaining that the God that they so said that they worshipped, he wouldn't be known by power. He couldn't be known by people wielding force or religiously following some rules. That, that, that type of power was leading to an end place. This morning, I, I want to look and examine a, a few of these stages of power, some of these faces, the first beginning with the, the religious power. And we know, we're told, that their numbers are loud, they're livid, and they're large. It's the perfect setup for what the elders and the priests and the Sanhedrin had in mind. In verse 1, we're told that they had a desire. They were going to put an end to this Jesus. And united in their efforts, they would leave little room for any who opposed what they wanted to do. We are told that there are some that wouldn't go along with that, that they didn't want to crucify Jesus or find him guilty. John informs us that there were some, he says, nevertheless, there are many, even of the rulers, who believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him so that they would not be excommunicated from the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men, of people, rather than the approval of God. We, we do know there are some that even despite this, that they did follow Jesus. We know, we know there's Nicodemus, who were told that came to Jesus in private at first, but later would come alongside him and he in the synagogue and in the power would, would say this, doesn't our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This is wrong. What we're doing is wrong. And in response, the reaction he was given, are you too a Galilee of Galilee? In other words, are you one that is a Jesus follower following the one that we so hate? We also know that there was Joseph of Arimathea who would later claim his body. And we are told that he was a member of the Sanhedrin and he didn't follow them as well. But, but the pressure, the political, religious power was so intense. They were determined that they were going to keep their power, the power of the religious, front and center. We're told in verse 3 that they tied up Jesus messaging to all that would look on that this Jesus is one that presents danger. He is someone that we better tie and bind because we're not sure what he can do. It, it, it's an absurd picture. It's a picture similar to Aslan, if you've read C.S. Lewis, a massive lion with all power to do everything that is tied down and restrained by, by mere, mere thread-like ropes that in, a, in an instant... That lion would have the power to break in two. 
But those mere threads that hold him actually bound him to the stone table, as we're told, because he's held down because of his love. He's held down, restrained by his love for us. He, almighty God, in love, submitting to the weak. The mighty creator God submitting himself to the creation. All because, as we've just sung about, his desire that he would want us to know him and be forgiven by him and loved by him. And yet, his creation dismissing his love, tightening the rope, signaling, hey, we, we determine control. We determine how life should be lived. We determine our destiny and by what criteria our lives will be judged. We determining that we don't need a cross in our life. There's nothing in us that requires that. Failing to understand that we may determine what we choose, but we don't determine what those choices might mean and where those choices might lead. We, like the religious, deceived and blind, chasing power that runs faster than we can chase. And even if we did catch it, it's just illusion because here's the thing. The positions of power and influence, they're easily lost. They can be taken from us. The, the places of accomplishments that we can achieve and put our lives together, they can be bettered by someone else. They can make us tomorrow's footnote. Just power that we grasp and hold on to, but it, understanding that it just goes through us like water. Or, or the altogether family that we just have that dream that, that life will be perfect as we raise our kids, raise our families, and then start to see that the things that we hold to sometimes come apart at the seams. Because the control and power that we hold on to, they're powerless when circumstances come or when illness comes in upon us or when betrayal happens. And all of a sudden we understand that the power we think that we're in control, we get hit with COVIDs of life that says we're not in control. And the religious holding to that power, not understanding that that religious wouldn't hold anything. Then we're told about the second power that we have in the scene. We have the political power that is there. where It's political power that we see in Pilate. He believing that he had the power to sentence. He had the power to take and free life or condemn someone. That the right to sentence was his. The truth is, it wasn't. Isaiah tells us this. The Lord was pleased. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Just as Moses lift up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That God authored the story, not Pilate. And when Jesus was brought before 
Pilate, we're told in verse 3, that it says that he is accused of many things. The Jews throwing at the wall as many accusations as they could against Jesus. But for the Romans to execute, they needed one charge. They needed the charge of sedition, of insurrection, of trying to overthrow the government. And so that's why they lashed out and said the story that he said he's the king of the Jews. He called himself king of the Jews, which violated Caesar being their king. And the Jews hated the idea of Caesar being their king, unless it served their purpose. But Pilate was politically shrewd. He knew what was happening. He knew that Jesus was brought before them, not because of guilt, but because of envy. So he had a plan. He was a political ruler. He was shrewd. He knew what to do. He had a plan. He would release Barabbas to them. He was a notorious prisoner or an insurrectionist. So so a prisoner exchanged pitting the the Barabbas, the murderer, against the innocent Jesus. That was a no-brainer. Except it wasn't. So Pilate's solution to satisfy the crowd, it came up empty. And Pilate, the powerful, discovered that he was powerless. His plans to orchestrate life coming up and not empty and not holding up. The same way that sometimes we discover that our lives that we try to orchestrate neatly, tailor the things that we will do, what we'll do, what we'll invest in, they end up springing leaks as well, that they don't hold up. Pilate. It was God's desire that he would crush Jesus. It's a strange thing to say. Jesus being crushed by God, not because Jesus or God wanted to see his son suffer, but because he understood that seeing past the suffering, that he would bring redemption. The last power we see is Roman power. It's power that's imposed. And as representatives of Rome, as long as the soldiers wore the uniform, they had the voice of power. They had Rome's authority to do what was best for Rome. And like the scribes and the Pharisees, they gathered numbers together. It says that a cohort of soldiers or a battalion of soldiers or a group of soldiers congregated to understand this. That meant that there would be 600 soldiers that would gather around Jesus for the purpose of mocking and abusing the safety of numbers among the 600 that no one could be singled out for personal gain. It was just one of us, just one of the many. And besides, the, the, the one in front of them as a prisoner, he wasn't their equal. I mean, his shackles conveyed that. The bloodied face conveyed that. So it was fair game to, to take Jesus, this one who had already been declared guilty, and to, to take a crown of thorns and press it down onto his head. That was fair game. I mean, this one was some sort of Uh, king, pretend king. And so they would strip him and then take his his clothes away and put on a purple robe so they could mock him. The actions of the many giving the anonymity of the few. They so 
comfortable and content in the anonymous of their uniforms, as they spat on him, the one they said is unworthy. As they take sticks, it says, and they hit him on the head because he's unworthy because they hold the power. They hold the position. And of all these actions, they're just what the Bible tells us is a foreshadowing of what is going to come in but a matter of days and hours, that he's going to be led to a place and be paraded to a cross. Cicero says of the cross, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is, there, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Such was the power that abused. So, Jesus stripped naked. A man by the name of Artemidorus tells us that under Roman law, men were crucified naked to humiliate. And even the Jews themselves, if they were to stone a victim to death for a crime, for a blasphemy, they would ensure that that person was clothed because you would kill, but you wouldn't debase by stripping naked. And we have the artist's renderings of Jesus with a loincloth. He wouldn't have had a loincloth. He was stripped naked because the Jews wanted to, or the, the Romans wanted to humiliate him in every way. And with humiliation accomplished, Jesus was nailed and hung like some specimen condemned to the justice of mighty Rome to be discarded and forgotten just like so many before him. And yet, if the size of the crowd that gathered around him to watch and spectate and mock was any indication, there was obviously something different about this one because he didn't suffer and die alone in terms of the others looking on. And it's incredibly ironic. All three of the power sources that we've looked at, the, the political, the religious, and the Roman force, they never stopped to consider that while they stood at the foot of the cross condemning and accusing, that they alone were the only ones worthy of guilt. The priests, knowing, knowing that they had condemned an innocent man, and in that, knowing that they had disobeyed God at a very deep level. Pilate, in fear, ruling and making a sentence by popular, by popular opinion, by giving in to the unjust demands of the crowd because he wanted to curry the favor of the crowd. And the soldiers, unable to hide the obvious violence that they had done, overtop violence they had done to the prisoner in their charge. And the only one who was innocent was left naked, alone to die on a cross. Jesus condemned so others could live. Now, there are several ways we can, do, we can look at this story. We, we can view it as a story. It's a, it's a drama about self-seeking accusers and a terribly wronged accused. That, that, that's one. It's, it's a story that we always tell at this time of year. Or it's a historical event. It's a 
fixed-in-time account when betrayal claimed victory over overwhelming good. As religious ceremonies, it's, it's traditions that we keep and things that we do. Or, as God's intervention, it's an amazing, undeserved invitation into life. It's God's invitation for humanity to come to the cross to decide. To decide, not observe. To choose and not just look. Showing us that each one of us nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sin, your sin, put him there. God making it very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. All our righteousness, as good as our deeds are, all of them are as filthy rags. All we like sheep have gone astray, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All pointing to this. Christ's death is not about Pilate or the Jews or the soldiers. It's about us. Yet, like those that we look at, every one of them denying and justifying. <laughs> How could we be accused of doing what they did? We, we, we wouldn't ever go anything like that. How could we be compared of our lies or our failures, our shortcoming, our sin? How be, could we be compared to that? Failing to understand that we chase after our own ways of power whether it's the power over others or the powers to be the master of our own lives, that we decide that we will rule our lives. Forgetting that God says, I look at your heart, I don't look at your activities. I look at what others don't see. Exposing what we don't want others to, to know, what we don't want to see in ourselves that we also justify, just like Pilate, trying to get out of our own mess to escape our guilt, saying, well, I'm not as bad as they are, and his actions were far worse than mine. Where we rationalize, like the soldiers, saying, we were just fulfilling our duty. We were just doing, uh, doing what the Roman rule lived by. That, we were just doing that. Or we evade, like the priests, how could, how could we be blamed? We were simply acting on behalf of God. We were just doing what God wanted us to do. Besides, who is this Jesus? He never studied in our schools. He, he, he has no credentials in which to live by. His birthplace was insignificant. So they dismissed. All of them never seeing Jesus for who he is. King above all kings. He's Lord. And the truth of it is, is oftentimes we do the very same thing. Seeing him as far less than who he actually is. We see him as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. He's our friend, 
but not necessarily our king. He's familiar, but he's not intimate. And because of that, we don't give him center place in our lives. We put him as someone that is beside us. Beneath all the justifying and the rationalizing and the evading, clinging on to power that we won't give up because we're not sure if we can trust God completely. And Jesus, the accused, doing exactly the opposite, saying, I don't cling to power, who though existing in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of of a servant. And on this cross, around which power seekers gathered, there was true power. The true power that forgave. The true power that offered mercy. The true power that bled grace. True power who forgave while being tortured, and he didn't have to. With the word, he could have righted every wrong He could have scattered the crowd before the darkness ever set in and before their demands could be heard. He could have demanded silence before sentence was ever given out of Pilate's lips. He could have restrained the whip before it ever touched his back. He could have dissolved the nails before they ever made it to soldiers' hands. But he didn't. Indeed, he bore the weight of sin, your sin and my sin, so we for, be forgiven. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. He who knew no sin became sin, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. His overwhelming love, offering forgiveness to those who life is overwhelmed, His amazing love offering forgiveness to those who have done unforgivable. Even, even everything we've done and say, no, I, I, I forgive those places too. His unfathomable love offering forgiveness to those who have done the unspeakable. Just like you and just like me. Forgiving and setting free. True power who forgave. True power who offered mercy. Mercy, while even being mocked by those standing in the safety of the distance of a crowd, thinking they're safe from this restrained, tied-down lion. This lion will never get off that stone table to come and actually attack me. And they were right, because he allowed himself to be tied. Love and mercy holding him to the cross. And even as they mocked, The one who could have commanded breath from heaven holding onto the cross. He, God's mercy, offering safety to those, the chief priests mocking him along with the scribes, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross now. And the last thing true power did, he offered Incredible, incomprehensible grace. He bled grace. All this offered of grace freely given, given by blood that poured from the nails, grace that took on every sin that wasn't him, every offense that had done, 
Jesus offering what we sang about earlier, something called tetelestai, paid in full, forgiven, blood given, blood poured out. This is the one who is worthy of our love, the Lord who poured out forgiveness and mercy and grace for anyone who would receive. But it all depends how we see it. A Roman historian said at the time this, speaking of this week in history, said, nothing of significance happened in that time during those days. Had he talked to another Roman who stood at the base of the cross, as the heavens shook and the sky turned black, he would have heard a different conclusion. He would have heard what the centurion said, truly, truly, This was the Son of God. And yet, even the centurion didn't get it 100% right. Because he failed to understand this was a to-be-continued event. That the final word hadn't been written. Which identifies the one thing that the centurion did miss. His conclusion. This was the Son of God, because it wasn't. Because in this place, another voice will be heard. Where the death voice of death seemed to reign, there'll be another voice that will soon be heard. It'll start as a whisper, and then it'll be said in a great glorious shout, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die then he asks this question, do you believe this? And it's a question that you and I are called to answer. Do we believe this? Because if he's just the familiar, if he's just the story, instead of being the Lord, the King, the one who calls us to know intimately, he will just be a yearly event, as opposed to someone that says, I want you to know me in all my power, all my glory, even in what you and I face right now, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Who is the Jesus that you believe in this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you this morning. We look at the story, the events of the crucifixion. And Lord, they're familiar to us. We know them. We can easily enter into the moment of it. We can be uh, overcome with emotion from it. We can be thankful from it. And yet, we so easily move from that place and fail to understand that you died to forgive our sins and give us life. That you love us. That you want us to know your life and power. That we live for you as King and as our Lord. And that one day we will welcome you, not just one that came from a grave, but that you will come from heaven itself so that you will bring us into everlasting life with you. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.